when you think about what you want to do to move your enterprise forward or your engineering group forward, what you really need to do is you need to think about having a single design platform that addresses all of the challenges that you face that will be essential to succeed in the fast-changing market that will allow you to move your design to the next generation. Welcome back to another episode of the Next Generation Design Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Piper. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the industrial machinery industry. My guest today is Scott Felber, a product engineering software marketing manager with Siemens Digital Industries Software. Scott, tell us about your professional background and how you ended up in your current role at Siemens Digital Industries Software. I'm Scott Felber. I am with the NX product marketing team. I've been with the product marketing team roughly about five years now. Before that, I did about 20 years in technical pre-sales supporting in the Midwest of the United States a lot of machinery customers. So I have a lot of experience helping our customers bring the value they need to their machinery companies and being able to work through them. Through helping customers and prospects recognize the value of utilizing Siemens software products, Scott assists them in mapping out plans for transforming their processes and ultimately their business. His primary focus centers on NX for design and demonstrating how that integrates into their process. Scott began our conversation by identifying three of the most important changes that need to take place over the next few years in order to progress toward the next generation of industrial machinery operations. They need to start developing their machines in more of a mechatronic or electromechanical design solution They need to start breaking down the silos of design that they're doing today amongst these different disciplines. Along with that, they need to be more collaborative, sharing their designs across the group in a a fashion that's easier for everyone to consume the information in the format they need it and increase the amount of reuse they do across the whole entire industry. And the last one, what they need to really think about is how do they get these machines commissioned so that they can be used out in the field, right? How much time do I spend getting a machine up and running and validated against its original requirements? And what can I do using Digital Twin to help shorten up those cycles? When you start with electromechanical and mechatronic design, the entire process goes from traditional to a more holistic design approach. Well, the biggest thing with electromechanical or mechatronic design is breaking down the barriers between the different groups that exist today within a machinery company. Let's think about that. A traditional machine when we think about machine design, was based almost entirely on the mechanical aspects of that machine. What kind of frame does it have? What kind of gears does it have? What kind of cams does it have? And what kind of systems does it have for moving material or packages through the machine? As we move forward now, we need to start thinking about the machine holistically and how we design not only that that traditional mechanical part, but also now how do we start integrating in the electronics? And by the electronics and electrical, what I mean is the sensors and the wires and the things we need to make that machine operate. So we need to worry about that while we're designing the machine. We can't wait till the mechanical part's done and then turn that machine over to our electrical group. Scott points out that PLCs and controllers are starting to have more influence on how fast machines are completed. So it's important that they be integrated into the design process at a much earlier phase. If you think about automation, That's really the PLCs and the controllers. How do I bring my automation engineers early into the design cycle 
so they can validate that their automation or their programs to operate those machines work? How can they validate that all the sensors I put in respond correctly to the conditions as they're being built? Also, how do I make sure that I have the packages and space requirements for that automation hardware and all the things associated with it on that machine so that that machine will perform at the highest quality right away the first time and I get it to market faster. He tells us the remarkable story of Rosendahl Nextrom, a European company that used Siemens design process to reduce their machine development time by 50%. They're a longtime machine builder. What I mean by that is they've been in business roughly about 50 years. And over those last 50 years, they've built machines in what we like to call the traditional machine builder cycle, right? And over the last 50 years, what they have done is they have pursued a journey of continuous improvement of how can we make our machine building process the most efficient process possible? And over those 50 years, they've tweaked their process and tweaked their engineering standards to go ahead and say, this is how we're going to build machines. So to them, they were at the perfect juncture of they said, we cannot build machines any faster. But then what came along was this ability now to start adding in the automation or mechatronic portion of the design earlier into the design phase, which they had never considered over the last 50 years they were in business. So by now, by taking this new paradigm of being able to introduce earlier into their design phase, the ability to include more groups in the design, they were able to reduce their machine development time by half. And what they say is, we thought we couldn't get any faster in how we build machines, but yet we were able to take about 50% of the time out of that machine design cycle. So that's a great story for how you use a multidisciplinary approach to get the machines done faster. So much departmental collaboration through the design process requires efficiency, and digital validation holds that key. What role does the digital twin play in the industrial machinery design process? People have different definitions of digital twin, but to me, the digital twin is really the virtual machine that we can use across all the areas of design that we need to do. The digital twin is the ability to share the information quickly and accurately and with all the fidelity that's needed to make design decisions without having to build costly physical prototypes. To me, that's really the key to a, to a digital twin strategy. And we at Siemens, we do enable the world's most comprehensive digital twin. A lot of people think of digital twin maybe as just a CAD model. But to me, the digital twin encompasses everything. It, encom- it encompasses the design. It encompasses also the electronics, also the movement and the movement of the machine. In addition to that, having an accurate digital twin allows us to digitally validate our designs, maybe for stress and strain as we build these high-speed machines. Can these machines perform to the strength material, to the strength we need them to do to hold up? Or we can do noise and vibration studies to make sure that before we build a machine, we're not going to have any resonance in the machine that'll have it just, you know, knock itself apart because we hit that certain frequency that the machine's kind of running at. Being able to do all this digitally eliminates a lot of time from the process. So to me, that's really the key to the digital twin. We're frequently prompted with software updates for our smartphones and computers, so we all know that technology moves constantly. Scott tells us how the Siemens continuous release process is working to keep machine technology software current for customers. We understand that our customers are having ever-increasing pressures on them to make machines faster 
and get machines done quicker and sooner with a higher level of quality. Well, the same token, we supply a lot of that software now to design those machines. And what we've done over time now is we've gone to a continuous release process for an old enterprise, for an enterprise-like system like NX. What we've done is now is so that our customers can now increase their value for their maintenance dollars by getting the releases they need almost instantaneously as we get new features in. No longer do they have to wait a year, year and a half to get the latest and greatest functionality from us. On a monthly basis, we are pushing out new releases so these customers can take advantage of the new features and functions to increase their value and get their machines done faster. They can take advantage of the latest technology today without having to wait out into the future. And by doing this, we're also enabling similar to almost how every other device works today in your life, if you think about it. When we're at home and we're using our our iPhones or Android phones or our tablets, we don't ask for updates to our applications. They just update and you get notified, hey, you have a new application. It's been updated. We fixed stuff or we made it better, right? We're doing the same thing from an engineering software perspective where if people want to, they can just have it automatically update their software all the time. Or there is some confusion around what that really means. Just because we're doing continuous release doesn't mean you're doing automatic updates. There's a fine differentiation between continuous release, which means we keep pushing software further and further all the time, and when you can implement or take that. If we go back to my example of the phone, the phone, what a lot of phones do is they do automatic updates, right? You turn on automatically update my application when I get a new one. What we're saying with our software is you do have that option available to you, but we also understand this is your engineering enterprise and you may want to take a look at the software or skip something. So we give you the option to not only do continuous release, but how you apply those updates to your existing structure today. With various departments communicating in their own distinct languages, an integrated platform is needed to simplify communication. Scott talks about how collaborative design management works and why it's such an important communicator. People want to do things more collaboratively, right? Everybody wants to work together in groups to get the best solution possible and somewhat of a group thing to come up with these great solutions. So there's a lot of tools now that when you think about using design software, you need to break down those barriers where, say, group A isn't using one design tool, group B is using another tool to design another part, and group C is using a third, yet a third tool. How do I integrate all those tools together to eliminate the non-value-added activity of remastering data across all these different systems? So part of collaboration is having an integrated solution that allows all your disciplines to work together on a single platform. That's the first one we like to talk about. Second one is really that not only do people get to work in an integrated platform across the different groups, they actually get to see the data presented to them in the format that makes the most sense to them. If I'm a designer, I need to see my structure in one way, right? And how how I interact with it as I design new components, maybe. Whereas if I'm in the electrical group, I need to focus more on how it's wired and what certain wiring things are. And so I get to see that focus. It's more than just managing the data. It's presenting the data to the end user in the format they need to do their job and get their tasks done. Scott explains the benefits of being able to reuse data and how that plays a role in configuration management. When you think about machine design or we think about, let's say, modular machine design, which a lot of companies are doing today, it really increases the reuse of their data across the enterprise. And reusing data is a huge benefit to most companies because 
as I reuse the data, I get more and more value out of it every time I reuse it. I may reuse a certain part of a subsystem of one machine across a whole section of machines. Maybe it's some kind of sorting mechanism I have. Or the other thing is, maybe from a configuration standpoint, I need to have a class of machines that does a certain thing. So how do I quickly build these class of machines and keep track of what I do to be able to get these solutions out to my customer? He goes on to specify the difference between assemble to order, configure to order, and engineer to order solutions. How do you really understand where you are as a machine builder and what solutions do I need to address that particular configuration management problem? Really, assemble to order and configure to order are pretty similar, and they're almost um, predefined selections I can pick where I pick I want option A, option B, option C. Yes, I know they all go together. Here's that machine. And that's really assemble or configure to order. And we have a, a wide range of solutions to, you know, work on that part of the, of the solution of your configuration issues. The bigger issue where the most value is, is within what's called the engineer to order solutions. And what that is, it's the ability to build a machine precisely for one customer for one use that we've never done before. And to do that, we have a whole set of tools to trace those requirements and drive the design to match the requirements. And that's an engineer to order solution. And really, to me, the easiest way to explain the difference between assemble or configure to order and engineer to order is, where do I need to spend the vast majority of my engineering resources? If I spend my engineering resources up front building configurations, that's configure and assemble to order. I pre-engineer all the solutions I'm going to sell. That's what I like to call almost like catalog solution, where I pick all, I check all the boxes and say, this is the machine I want. We pre-engineer those solutions and say, yes, those all fit together and that's the machine we will give you. And then that will trigger at the machine builder the ability to build that machine quickly. Engineer to order is actually the opposite. In engineer to order, I talk to my customers and their needs for what they need for their machine, maybe the speed, the size of where it fits and what it's doing. And what I do then is I take all these requirements as engineering requirements to drive a brand new design that I've never built before. That's a lot harder to do, but there's a lot more value in it because you're building machines precisely for what's needed. And sometimes customers won't have to settle for a machine that's close to what they want because it was configured that way. I can almost build any machine that I want to by applying these engineering rules to my designs and moving forward with that. I asked him about current trends he's seeing in machine commissioning. Machine commissioning is really a big part of the machine building process. And if we look across the globe today, we're seeing a little bit of a downward trend in machine builders based on some other industries where machine builders supply machines to other industries. So they need to start thinking about how they can get their machines done faster with less, less disruption of their end customers. Really what machine commissioning means is when I take the final machine that I have built and then I have applied all the automation hardware to it and all the automation routines and programs, then when I put it on that shop floor, it runs exactly how I expected it to run. What traditionally happens is machine builders will build a machine. They'll pass it over to the automation group. The automation group will then figure out what PLCs it needs, what they need to do, figure out all the logic to drive those PLCs to make that machine operate. And then they will take that machine and that automation hardware and those programs out to a customer site, install the machine, and then they will commission it or validate that it works as designed in a physical environment. And when you think about that, that can take anywhere from weeks to months. The other thing with 
physical commissioning is there's a huge risk on if you don't have the automation hardware correct or you have something designed wrong that you will break machines out on a shop floor. So now I need to go back to my my office or you know my factory and I need to build new parts and solve that engineering problem. Scott says that the problems presented by physical commissioning can be resolved by using a virtual commissioning process instead. It's also a solution that saves time and money. At Siemens, we're the leader in combining the physical and the virtual world around this commissioning, virtual commissioning solution. If you think about virtual commissioning, what we're doing is we're taking that machine that we built digitally, the digital copy of the machine. We're now applying the automation routines digitally to that machine, and we are watching that machine work. Is it going to work? Is it going, are there going to be collisions? Is everything going to operate the way we expect to get the stuff in and out of the machine the way we needed it? And we can do this digitally. Now, if there's a crash digitally, all we have to do is re, you know, redesign CAD models and rerun it. So we decrease the time it takes to validate that solution. And in addition, we, we're not incurring the expense of putting people out on the road to, to commission those machines. We're doing it all at, the, at our place before we go out into the world. You can take it one step further with virtual commissioning. We're talking about virtual commissioning where we have software to virtually emulate the, the PLCs or, or programmable logic controllers and the feedback that they would get from the, the interface. How is my machine operating? So I can use these virtual models now for operator training. Here's what it's going to look like operating on the shop floor. Here's the messages you're going to get as a machine operator and train you how to use that machine. That's all great in the virtual world. And that's called virtual software in the loop validation. I can even take that step one further now. And if I have all my automation hardware, I can connect my automation hardware at my desk directly to my 3D models, my digital twin. And I can use the actual physical hardware to drive the digital model of that machine to watch how things work. How is the interface working? Are my warning lights turning red, yellow, and green as needed? If I put if something breaks a sensor beam, does the machine stop as, as it's expected? If someone opens a safety gate, does the machine stop as expected? I can do all this not out at the end customer site, but I can do it internally to me. Then when I take that hardware out and I install it on that machine we built on the shop floor, I can eliminate that time out at the machine builder's customer site so they can quickly get those machines up and running at their plant instead of me being out there for maybe weeks and months, taking up spot on their floor, maybe having to shut their lines down and other things. So again, it's this ability to bring more value to the end customers for the machine rebuilders. Virtual commissioning has been an effective solution for snack machine manufacturing company, Trondrud, out of Norway. Thanks to their decision to virtually commission their machinery, they experienced a digital crash rather than a physical interruption on the manufacturing floor. If they would have taken those machines out and built them and used the automation programs that they had, the machines would have crashed together out on the shop floor. They were able to have this digital crash, which didn't cost them anything in in terms of material and other things. They were able to fix that and, again, validate that back out before they even built the machine. So, again, there was no waste, no nothing else. They could do this very quickly, right? If you think about how long it takes to design and fabricate a new part, Versus digitally, I can just, okay, those parts are going to crash. I can redesign that part or change the automation routine, depending on what what the root cause of the issue is. I can quickly get these machines built then with less waste. 
I asked Scott where he suggests customers start who are wanting to implement this time and money saving technology. That's always a good question, right? Because the question is to the customers is, where do you see the biggest gap today that you need to address, right? Is it around your design software? Is it around your platform between all your different groups, your multidisciplinary groups? Is it you want to do, you're pretty good there, but you want to start into implementing virtual commissioning because you think that's your biggest thing. That's really where you need to sit down and kind of try to find out a good path forward of how to get from A to B to C, right, through all of the, all of the technology that's out there today. It's not one size fits all and you start here or there. You need to really start with the areas that one, your group's willing to change, and two, that you figure you can get a lot of return in that area. Reflecting on the biggest benefits of this technology, Scott puts out the difference between a Siemens approach versus other solutions options out there. Siemens is the one company today that can provide both the virtual and physical solutions needed for machine builders. It's unprecedented today of the solutions we can bring to market to help every machine builder. Not only do we have the solutions for software and hardware and everything in between to connect them together, Siemens as a corporation also uses these solutions every day to build their own products, right? As opposed to a lot of software companies, Siemens is also a manufacturing company. Siemens does make things. Siemens does have factories that produce things. So we actually use our own technology to take advantage of that. Other companies don't do that. Most of the other companies we see out there, they're either software companies or hardware companies. And in cases now, you're starting to see a almost like a partnership, a loose partnership or cooperation between software and hardware companies. Although that looks good on paper sometimes, the, the issue becomes is what happens if there's a problem between the hardware and the software? Which company really do I go talk to if it's you know software company a and hardware company B, who, who's managing that interface between the two? Whereas when you look at Siemens, the biggest benefit is we do it all, we own it all, we integrate it all, and we use it all, right? There's no one else that can really make that statement across the board. So to me, that's really the biggest value I see in coming to Siemens and working with us on these needs. As many industries are moving toward cloud-based solutions, I asked Scott if the trend is similar within industrial machinery. He points out that Siemens NX software doesn't force companies to choose between cloud and subscription-based solutions. We're seeing cloud start to take advantage of some of the economies of scale, right? I don't need a lot of hardware on site to run engineering applications. I can run it in the cloud. But by the same token, we also allow people to run their engineering software in the traditional ways, right? We don't force people to choose between subscription or perpetual licenses, which are really the two major ways people buy engineering software today. We allow people the traditional perpetual license that you run, you know, you pay for the software and pay the maintenance and run it that way. And we're starting to get into the cloud-based solutions now where you pay a subscription and that subscription is great where you can just pay for it as you need it on, a, on an ongoing basis. The nice thing about allowing both methods is we don't force you to choose and let's say you're a traditional perpetual license user, right? And that's the, that's the method you like. But if we got a big project and we need to add on, let's say, a couple of users for a couple months, we don't have to go through all the trouble of trying to buy more licenses onto that perpetual license base. We can just rent, pretty much go to the cloud and get this functionality we need in the short term and just pay for it then. And then when that project's over, we can let those just go away and not have to spend all that money up front. 
Augmented reality and virtual reality are on the rise in areas like traditional design, serviceability, and training solutions. Scott talks in detail about how these solutions are being applied. AR and VR are becoming very big in the machinery from a, um, a couple of standpoints, right? The first one is from a traditional design standpoint, where we can start doing design reviews. Um, if we're a bigger machine builder, maybe in multiple locations, we can start doing design reviews between locations with one set of digital twin, right? Where I'm in one city and somebody's, let's say, you know, hundreds of miles away in another city, we can virtually go into that machine and look at it. Another place where we're seeing all this augmented and virtual reality is really in serviceability, right? As we start looking at the breadth of solutions, what we want to see is we want to have our service group be able to go out into the field, hold up either glasses, their phone, some kind of tablet against the machine and virtually see how to repair that. So we can start allowing non-expert service people to do expert level work by giving them the instructions virtually right on the machine they're looking at. So that's one area we're seeing a lot of uptick too. Also, like we talked about earlier with the training, the training aspect from virtual commissioning, it also becomes a virtual training of how we see the machine run, right? We can in full scale see it with the goggles and kind of have a feel for how the machine is going to work if maybe for the operator, right? How is the stuff going to be loaded and offloaded onto the machine if we have to do that step or something like that? So yeah, that's really a good point to mention is that we're seeing that more and more every day. Last year, one of the continuous releases included an adaptive user interface technology. Are you seeing that being adopted in the industrial machinery industry? I'm sure we will. It's really new technology. We're just starting to go down that path. But everyone we've showed it to and talked to, they really love that technology. They really understand that technology and where it can go and what it can lead to. Again, it's almost, it's going to start learning how you work and it's going to start predicting what you want to do next. And that's just from the adaptive user interface. There's a whole nother host of products that we're really working on that you'll be seeing over the next you know, couple of years around this whole area. How do we make the software respond to what we expect it to do, right? Kind of like a second skin or something, or it knows what you want to do. So what I'd say to that one is just stay tuned because there's going to be a lot of exciting news coming out around that area. Before we wrap up today, how can listeners connect with you? I can be found in two places. I can be found on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And at both of them, it's just my name. It's Scott, S-C-O-T-T, Felber, F-E-L-B-E-R. So on LinkedIn, if you look for me there with that name, that's how you find me. And on Twitter, it's at Scott Felber, one word. So those are really the two places to find me. I'm out there. And like I said, I try to keep people informed on trends and other things going on or just stuff I find just interesting. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I'm your host, Jennifer Piper, and this has been another episode of the Next Generation Design Podcast Series.